0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Travis Seppla, and I am your host. This is episode one, and being that it is episode one, I would like to start with a brief introduction as to why it is that I'm doing a podcast. Uh, One of the reasons is simply it's a necessary creative outlet for me at this time. It gives me an opportunity to take a lot of the different information that I may read and study on a weekly basis as I prepare for things like teaching or preaching, Um, just normal things that I would do on a weekly basis or sometimes daily or monthly basis as a pastor. And it gives me an opportunity to take a lot of that material that doesn't make it into the different things like messages or, or Bible studies and to to share it because otherwise it's just kind of stuck in my head and I'm never actually able to use it. Because if I did use it, a lot of my messages would get extremely lengthy. And so this is definitely something that becomes a creative outlet. It also gives me an opportunity to address the different people who might listen to me. Um With just my own interpretation on a number of different topics that are theological in nature, um it also helps me deal with the fact that that in this busy day and age it's really difficult to get people to regularly attend bible study and and that's not a criticism it's just the reality of the of what we live with this day. I mean, especially if, if people have like young children, I mean, that that just gets really hard just to make it to church on a weekly basis at, at, at a certain time at night, because you have many parents that need to be doing things like waking their kids up as early as six o'clock in the morning. So like a seven o'clock Bible study um, that lasts till eight. I mean, that can be very stressful and very very demanding that and a lot of work schedules just don't work um, for that that type of a schedule either so this gives me an opportunity to bring a bible study to you the listener so i mean there's no doubt about it that the congregation that i serve here at the east side lutheran church is definitely the one of the the intended audiences, but I would hope that if it's something that blesses anybody that would hear that it would that they would be willing to share it with as many people as they want. Um, the other thing I really want to do is to have conversations, um, some of them with members of my congregation, some of them with just people that I know and give people an opportunity to. Uh, Have a a conversation about different topics that I really think Christians should be talking about rather than disengaging from the world. And, And at the same time, giving some people an opportunity to share their stories. One of the really incredible things and privileges that I get as a pastor is I get to hear and see some really amazing stories kind of unfold in the background. And in a lot of cases... They happen outside of the public eye. In a lot of cases, even, you know, you might be sitting next to somebody in church and have no idea that the person that you're sitting next to has just an amazing and powerful story. And in many cases, if you could hear that, it can bring encouragement to you. And And this is really um, something that I'm very excited to share with others. There's a, a number of different people. That I have gotten to contact with asking them if they would be willing to participate in this way. And so not only are we going to have conversations about a number of different topics, but conversations where I just try my absolute best to get out of the way and allow and allow everybody else to hear some of these amazing, powerful stories about things like redemption, loss, pain, and ultimately, in many cases, victory. And my hope is that in hearing that, it will encourage as many people as possible. And let's face it, the world we live in today is a world that um, is not an easy world to live in, to say the least. And we could all use a little bit of encouragement. We could all also all use some time where we sit and listen to a few people talk with one another, maybe even disagree on a number of different topics and understand that we can still love one another. The idea isn't that we we see eye to eye perfectly, but that we can still treat one another with some dignity, with some respect, with some grace, with some forgiveness. I mean, this is really what I believe is the hallmark of the Christian church. It's our capacity to love one another and to love the world around us. And if we choose Instead of doing that to try to figure out um, what makes us, you know, so holy or so wonderful or what makes us different from other people, it doesn't really turn into, I should say, it turns into something entirely different rather than focusing in on things like love, grace, and forgiveness. We focus in on our differences and it becomes really easy to hate one another and to treat each other really poorly. And to be honest... I've just seen a lot of that lately, people treating each other poorly, um, and, and to be honest, rather than sit there and criticize it, my hope is that I can be involved and I can participate in something that brings something positive to the world around me, and it actually, hopefully, introduces people to the love of Christ that exists within the church. So let's get started. In the book of Acts, we have the earliest description of, of the Christian church that, that we know of. And it, it occurs right at the very end of chapter 2. And to paraphrase it, what it tells us as it describes it is it says that the, all of the believers were together And they were holding all things in common. And it goes on to describe what that actually means, that they were together and holding all things in common. And the description really is is that they sold their possessions and they sold all of their property, or it doesn't say all, but they sold their possessions and they sold their property. And then they took the proceeds of those sales and they distributed those proceeds among anybody who had a need and so that the needs of all people were being met and they devoted themselves to prayer they devoted themselves to meeting in the temple they devoted themselves to getting together and meeting house to house and breaking bread with each other and constantly it says that they prayed to the lord and they prayed i mean not prayed but they praised the lord and they were at favor with everybody in other words they had good relationships with with everyone that they meet and that the lord continued to bless them and increase people to their number. Now the early part of the description that I I just was stating has lent many people to make the statement that Christianity is a lot like communism. And the reason they say that is because of this idea that they take all of their possessions and their property and they sold it and they take the proceeds and then they turn around and then distribute it to everybody. And so it's the idea of, of taking it all and, and supporting the commune or the community. And I'd just like to speak into that just a little bit um, and let you know, you know, what my opinion is and, you know, you can take it or you can leave it. But I think it's absolute garbage to make that type of an assumption. And the reason I I say that is because of the origins of Christianity and the origins of the reason why the early Christian church looked like this, and then to compare that to the origins of communism. So in the 1800s, mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s, you have a guy by the name of Karl Marx that comes along. And he doesn't arrive into a vacuum. He arrives into a society that's deeply influenced um, by a philosophical milieu or an environment where individuals no longer really have value as individuals. But really, there's this, this new understanding that's coming about that as, as human beings, what gives a person value and in, in, in gives an individual value is the group that you belong to. At the same time, you have the writings of people like uh, Charles Darwin, who are was who, who basically saying at that point in time that that they understood how the human race and, and really how all of these things that that existed within the creation had come about, and really there was this idea that there was just nothing more than an evolution and a progression that was going on. And philosophically, that's really the same thing that people believed was going on, and even within the scientific community, the same thing was going on. You had a lot of the different sciences converging, and and people firmly believed, some people at least, firmly believed that just about everything that there was to know about science was known. And just about everything that was to be known about biology was already known, and just about everything that we really needed to know about society and how people should function was already now known. And it was this age of just deep optimism that we were moving towards something wonderful. That here we are, we're, we're as the human race, and we are about to enter into this this amazing new era. And, and I find it fascinating that there is just so much optism, optimism that surrounds it because, I mean, really, there was so little that we actually knew. I mean, we hadn't even, at that point in time in human history, we had no understanding of what a cell actually was. People firmly believed that it was actually a very simple um, engine that was actually running at the core of all things, and, and actually, it was a deeply complex engine, and there's really no way of knowing that, not, and... Um, until you actually had the ability to, until we, the human race, had the ability to observe it over time. We still hadn't discovered things like DNA. We had no idea what that was. Within the scientific community, we had no understanding of what the atom was. We didn't know anything about that. Maybe there was a couple of like theories that were out there, but at that point in time, certainly not. And it's into this environment that all of a sudden you have a guy by the name of Karl Marx who's, who's asserting this idea, really, that, that in order for human beings to, con- to continue to progress, we needed to move from capitalism into this idea of communism or socialism. And he does so quite naively. Because not only does he understand how little, you know, was actually known about the world around him, um, there was so little that was actually known even about the human psyche. And just how deep the capacity for evil and malevolence was that existed within the human race. And you have to give him some grace there because psychology wasn't necessarily even a discipline at this point in time. And so... What he does is he, he kind of writes with this understanding that, yeah, indeed, human beings have no individual value, that really we are nothing more than just a bunch of people that are evolving. And it's really important that we continue to evolve. And really, as human beings, what gives us value is the groups of people that we belong to. And so as he writes, he kind of breaks off all of these different groups that, that people belong to in a society. And he says in order for a society to function properly, we need to make sure that all of the resources are are evenly distributed. And the people in his mind that are most equipped to do this would be the working class, the people that have struggled the most, the proletariat, he labels them. And it's really amazing because what he does is he appeals to their baser instincts. And this is really a dangerous thing. He didn't even really understand what he was doing, I firmly believe this, because he didn't know the psychology of the human being. He wasn't willing to acknowledge just how malevolent people could be. And so what he does is he ab- he appeals to to one of the more evil parts of the human being and that is our greed and our desire for other people's possessions. And he does this by telling the, saying that in order for society to, to overthrow uh, um, capitalism and, and the monarchy, that at some point in time, the proletariat is going to have to seize the resources from, from the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy. And the belief was is that if you could appeal to that, you could convince people to go out and to take that, that they were just going to be then willing to give it out and distribute it really evenly, and they would be so gracious about that. Um, and, And nothing could be farther from the truth. Because he didn't understand really how deep a problem greed was. And if you tried to awaken that within the human being, it doesn't just go away. And that's something that we need to remember. Because there's a lot of different things in our lives that are like this. You know, there's a lot of different maladies that the human being has. And and before we go awaken those in other people, or we force that kind of stuff on other people, we better be aware of the fact that some people don't recover. So things like you know, causing fear or anxiety amongst people thinking that that might actually be a good thing can actually be a terrible thing because many people never actually fo- truly recover from fear and anxiety and they end up completely shutting themselves off from their society or devaluing people or making them feel, you know, running them down and calling it constructive criticism. Well, some people never actually recover from that because depression can be very very, very debilitating within a, a large and significant portion of the population. And greed, greed is another one of those things where you kind of convince people you that, you know, the problem that you have in your life is all of the things that you should have or all of the things that if you had them, they would make you happy. The problem is, is other people have them. And if you could just go out and get them from those other people, that your life is going to be a lot better. And God, God warns us of this very thing. You know, this is what He's talking about in the, in the ninth and tenth commandments within the Bible. He's talking about the fact that it is not a good thing for you to be looking at your neighbor's stuff, his land, his property, his wife, or whatever else he or she may have, and think to my think to yourself, "Well, my life would be a whole lot better if I had what they had." And yet, this is exactly what Karl Marx is telling people. You want to know the problem with you? You don't want to know the problem with your poverty is that actually somebody else has the very things that belong to you. And if you'll just go out and seize them that everything's going to be right. And he convinced himself that once people did that, that they were going to be able to get past that greed and turn around and share it with other people. And and we're not talking about just the money, but also the power and, and it's time and time been proven over and over again that that's just not the case because you've actually awakened a beast within people that is very difficult to put it away and you've awakened that beast inside of a construct in communism that's so deeply influenced by the philosophy that it was <clears throat> that it was born into that not only have you awakened greed but you've also awakened greed in into this environment where human beings have no individual value that really the only thing that gives us value is the group of people that we belong to and so as a result i don't really hold another human being with value and so why would i give it to you i'm just going to continue to go on and serve myself because honestly who are you and this is where christianity is so different because Christianity never starts from this idea of, hey, you know what? We want to have a wonderful society and we're going to build on that society and and um, that's why we're going to go out and, and, and sell our possessions and give it to other people and that's why we go into third world countries or, or that's why people are motivated to do it. It actually starts from this understanding that comes from, from the word of God itself which tells us, That God created the human race, that we are created beings, and we're not just created, but we're created in the very image of God, which means that every single human being that we encounter is an individual who has a deep and intrinsic value, and it's a value that's tied to the fact that not only are they a creation of the God of this universe, but they also bear the image of the God of this universe, So to do damage to another human being is to desecrate God. And to do damage to another human being is actually to do damage to myself because I'm marring the human race that I'm part of. And so it starts there, but it doesn't simply end there. Because really the marvelous thing is that what the word also teaches us is that in that state— where here you have the human race that's been created in in the image of God. Even when they fall away, God does not abandon his race. It's not even just the fact that he has created the race, but that he has this deep and abiding love. A love that is greater than any disobedience, a love that is greater than any hatred that is shown toward him, a love that causes him to do something that no human being to this day can fathom, and that is he sacrifices his own son for our redemption. And just a quick side note, I mean, the idea of redemption, I mean, I used it, and, and it's not a word I necessarily like because it's it's so often misunderstood. We tend We tend to think about it as though it's some sort of a... A biblical word and actually it really just means purchase. So quite literally it's saying God has purchased us, that we are the possession of God and the price that he paid in order to make that purchase is his own son. And so we're not just created and we're not just created in the image of God, but we belong to him. He has sent his son to die for us and he has declared us to be his children and he looks upon us in the same, as though we are his children. And this is why, you know, within the scripture, you know, when Jesus Christ tells us to address God, he says the way we're supposed to address God is start by saying the words, our father, because he truly is our father. And that that's something that I just find to be absolutely amazing, because what God is saying through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, is that when you talk to me, I want you to call me dad. I want you to understand that I'm your father and my love for you is absolutely endless. And you see, this is why Christians and within the early Christian church, you see this desire to actually take one's possessions, sell it and distribute it to the poor. It's not so that I can earn love from God it's not so that I can gain points. It's not as though I get to wear it as a badge and pin it on my chest when I get to heaven, as somebody who I deeply love always says. That, that's not why these things happen. Because honestly, there's nothing that I can do or you can do or anybody else in this whole entire world can do to make God love you. And the reason is, is because he already loves you just as you are. And there's nothing that you can do or I can do or anybody else in this world can do that will make God not love you because his love is not tied to your performance. His love is just tied to the fact that you are his creation and he is willing and was willing to send his own son to die for you. And that's where your value is determined as a human being. And interestingly enough, that's what determines the value of every other single human being that I encounter in my life. So everywhere I go, every person that I meet bears the image of God, an image that Christ himself wore when he became a human being. And so there is no human being that I'll ever encounter in my entire life that God does not love and that God does not ask and tell me to love, which is exactly what Christ said right at the very end of his life. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another. And he goes on to say... That this is how people are going to know that you're mine. It's going to be by your capacity to love one another. And as I said a little earlier, this has always, in my mind, been the hallmark of the Christian church. It's our capacity to love our neighbor. And that's why Christianity is not just some form of like social construct. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It's not even a way of life. It's a condition of heart, and this is something that is so easy to miss and I think so easy to represent, misrepresent within Christianity. Christianity is not some moral code. It's not a way of life. It is a condition of heart, and it's a condition of heart that is moved by the love that God has shown toward us and the value that God has established in us and in every other human being. And it's a condition of heart that motivates us, to love other people more than we love ourselves. Thanks for listening. And hey, if you enjoyed this, please share it with everyone and anyone that you possibly can. I'll deeply appreciate it. Thank you and goodbye.